morning again. We are going to recognize the veterans later on in the service, but just let me say on my own behalf, on the Veterans Day is tomorrow, thank you for all the veterans and to your, for your service. And I even wore my Navy tie today, Mr. Gracie, in your honor. So. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3, of course, all the Scripture references will also be on the screen behind me, but we'll be in 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4 this morning. You may not realize it, but two of the most famous people in all of ancient world history lived in the same city for a few years. Now you might think, well, that's not really that big a deal, is it? Well, when you think about ancient world history, most of the people we remember are just kind of occasionally spaced out over time, like Alexander the Great or Socrates or Plato or whoever. But there are two men that overlapped for a short period of time in the seventh decade in the city of Rome. And I'm referring to the Apostle Paul and the Roman Emperor Nero. Of course, no one noticed Paul. Everyone was fascinated with Nero, this colorful, young, flamboyant, powerful ruler. The rich and the famous, they bowed to him. I mean, he would have been on the cover of every magazine, GQ, Times Person of the Year, Ellen and Jimmy Fallon and Oprah, they all would have wanted him on their shows. Trump would have given him a state dinner in his honor. His Twitter following would have been astronomical. Nero would have been the hero. And Paul, the zero. In contrast with Nero, Paul would have been seen by many as this kind of old, odd, eccentric religious fanatic from a Jewish outpost of Rome down in Jerusalem. That strange guy who was always talking about Jesus, passionately asserting that Jesus was some sort of God. And since he constantly talked about Jesus, the Roman authorities did what they did with people like him. They arrested him, they put him into prison, and they left him. So while Paul was suffering and growing old in prison, Nero was enjoying the palace. Did you know that archaeologists tell us that they found in 2009 that Nero actually had a rotating dining room? That's just fascinating at that point in history. Nero enjoyed luxury, and he enjoyed the spotlight. And you know, if you would have just been walking down the street back then, and you were to ask somebody, well, who do you 
think history is going to remember? Who do you think is going to make the most impact in this world? Their immediate response would have been, well, Nero, of course. Or they might have said, Paul who? Nero had everything going for him. He was married to the beautiful Pompeia Sabina. She was this beautiful blonde woman who took daily baths in milk to make her skin soft. So this gorgeous woman, every day they would bathe her in this huge tub, this huge container filled with milk. But in kind of this strange twist of history, at age 30, she became lactose intolerant and died. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Don't, don't write that in your notes. That's why I come to church, so I can ask for forgiveness. But no, the truth is, she really did take baths in milk. They had 400 donkeys right outside the palace that they would harvest the milk for, specifically for her to take these baths in milk. They also would dry her with swan feathers, and then they would rub, massage her hands and her feet with the mucus of crocodiles. That's the truth. Why would they do that? Because Nero liked soft skin. But my question is this. Who's the nude that figured out that crocodile mucus was good for your skin? How did that come about? That's what I want to know. But whatever Nero wanted, he got. He would have these lavish parties, and he would be kind of the center of the entertainment. And when Nero was 24 years old, about the same time that Paul would have been in Rome, he erected the Colossus. And the Colossus was this huge statue, 120 feet tall. And I'm going to reference this again because I just think it's something we're all familiar with and gives us perspective the Wilder Tower out in the battlefield is 80 feet tall. So it's 40 feet taller than the Wilder Tower out in the battlefield. So he constructed this, and guess whose image is on the top? Nero's. So everybody would have been forced to look up to Nero, and of course look down on Paul. First century non-biblical literature describes Paul this way. Small in stature, bow-legged. He had a unibrow. His eyebrows went all the way across. He had the characteristic large Jewish nose, but his was even larger than normal. Spiderweb scars just kind of went across his back. And his hard life had stiffened his joints. He didn't look like much. I think they had a picture there, if you could throw that back up again. There's a picture of Nero and his bust and an artist's rendering of Paul. Just quite the contrast between Nero's good looks and his good reputation. Paul, just kind of this scraggly looking man is kind of the best way you can describe him. Last week we heard about the beatings that Paul took, and I'm just going to briefly touch base on them again. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 
Forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. And I spent a day and a night in the open sea. I mean, it's a wonder that God can still walk. But walk he did all over the continent. I shared with you last week how on his three missionary journeys, they estimate that the total was about 13,400 miles that he walked. Eight to ten years 13,500, 400 miles. These weren't vacations. These weren't sunbathing excursions. It was work. We're given one example that one source tells us that when he was in Ephesus during the day, he would work at his tent-making business up until 11 o'clock in the morning. Then he would go to this public venue, a venue called Tyrannus, and he would speak in this Tyrannus Hall, this public venue. And he would speak there from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every single day except the Sabbath. He did that for two years. You do the math. That's 3,120 hours of teaching in two years. The man was tireless. Nothing slowed him down. And when he wasn't bidding, visiting a city or traveling or preaching, you know what he was doing? He was writing books. Twelve books, at least, in the New Testament. You could say, arguably, that he was the most influential writer in history. I mean, he, he wrote, and he wrote to churches like the church in Rome and the church in Philippi and the church of... At Corinth, he wrote to individuals like Timothy and Titus. And it's one of those pastoral letters this morning, the book of 2 Timothy, that I want us to kind of hone in this morning. We are kind of wrapping up our year-long study through the Bible that we've been calling the story. And we started over in Genesis, and now we're up to Paul's kind of final days. And next week... We'll kind of talk about the end times, and, and that'll kind of finish up our chronological journey that we started back in January. But as we look at 2 Timothy this morning, it's kind of the final days of Paul's life. He realizes that he's near the end. This aging man is chained in a Roman prison called the Mamertine Prison, which is much more like a Dungeon in the ground. And I think, yeah, there's a picture of it there. Scholars tell us, and you can see it in the picture, that prisoners were kind of lowered through that hole there, much like a, a manhole cover. It was filthy. It didn't have any type of sanitation at all. And it was actually part of their sewer system. So periodically, when they just ran out of space, they would just flood it with sewage. And they would wash out the prisoners after they had drowned. And then they would just start all over again. Those were the conditions that Paul was living in when he wrote the book of 2 Timothy. And he wrote it to his protege, Timothy. He knows his time is short. Death is imminent. Who's going to take over for Paul? 
making sure the early church keeps going. Who's going to pass the torch? Paul identifies it as Timothy, at least in the short term. But it's not just Timothy. It's also us by application. These are Paul's last words to Timothy, but they're also his last words to us. And so we're going to begin in chapter 3. And the finish line is in sight, and Paul's kind of picking up the pace here. And he's summarizing his faithfulness in life and his fearlessness in death. And he gives us what I want to really focus on this morning is four responses for living the Christian life, but living it consistently. You know, consistency is the key for so many things in life. Many people never get to where they want to be in life because they lack consistency. You want to have financial peace? Every financial planner will tell you, consistently save, consistently give to your retirement account. Want to be good at a musical instrument? Play every day. Want to be a great three-point shooter? Shoot hundreds of balls every day. Want to excel in a sport? Practice consistently. Want to lose weight? Consistently watch your diet and exercise. Whatever you want to do in life, consistency is so often the key. And so Paul's going to talk about that for the spiritual life. Because again, consistency is the key. And so when Paul starts talking about consistency, living the Christian life, he begins the thought with endurance. That's the first thing he says. Keep enduring. Hang in there. So he's writing in chapter 3, and I'm going to pick up with verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life. My purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, suffering. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it. You know, I know you've heard me say this before, but I think sometimes we think that the Christian walk is flowers and lollipops. It's not. The Christian walk will be tough sometimes. Our journey will be difficult and Paul specifically tells Timothy, persevere through the persecution. Follow my example of endurance. Depend on God. In fact, he even tells Timothy, if you're a Christian, you can expect persecution. For us, hang in there. At work, you may be expected to compromise your ethics for the sake of the sale. Keep in there. In your friendships, you may be ridiculed for your faith. Keep enduring. 
In your dating relationship, you may be pressured to have sex before marriage. Don't do it. Keep enduring. In your marriage, you may have extended family coming over for Thanksgiving. It's like mixing oil and water. Keep enduring. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Remember, the Christian life is going to have its difficulties. There's going to be challenges. Paul says, hang in there. Keep enduring. Secondly, he says, keep reading. Look at verse 15. From infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I want you to notice the word there in verse 16, that word, useful. It says, Scripture is useful. And it kind of implies there also that the Christian life without Scripture is useless. You see, the Bible is what equips us for life and for good works. Scripture is huge. And Paul is stressing that to Timothy. He said, if you're going to follow after Jesus, you've got to read his word. You can't spiritually grow much if you're not in his word. You know, yesterday, they had a, a marathon out at the battlefield National Park, National Battlefield. That's 26.2 miles. Let's say that a year ago, in 2017, this time of year, you decided that you wanted to run in that marathon. So you laid out your training schedule, and this is your training schedule to prepare for that marathon. You decided you'd run once in January, then you'd run once again in July, and then you'd run again the last week of October. So those three times. And that was going to be your preparation for running that marathon. That's crazy. You wouldn't have a prayer of running a marathon if you prepared like that. Even if you ran once a week, you probably don't have much of a chance of finishing 26.2 miles before the lights go off, the sun goes down, whatever. But how often do we approach our spiritual life like that? I'll read God's word occasionally. I'll show up at church here and there. And then we wonder why our spiritual life is up and down like a yo-yo. We need to be taught from God's word. We need to be corrected. We need to be trained in righteousness. We, we have to be reading it. We have to be studying it. And when life does get tough and when we get confused and we get disappointed and we get frustrated, we go to God's Word. And that's kind of what this whole entire year is about, is just kind of giving you an overview of the Bible so that you can kind of put some things together. And we've been emphasizing reading through God's Word this year, too, with the, with the F-260 Bible plan that, we're gonna, that we've been doing. Just, just putting God's Word so that you can weave it into the fabric of your life. So we keep enduring, we keep reading His Word, and then... He's at the very end of his life in chapter 4. And he mentions two other things in chapter 4. In verse 6, he says, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. 
So he's telling us, keep pouring. So he describes himself as a drink offering. What does he mean by that? I mean, our Western civilization, what, what is in the world is he talking about when he says a drink offering? Well, he's making a reference back to the Old Testament and the sacrificial system. And back then, when you, when, when you brought something for the priest to sacrifice, the priest put part of it on the altar, and then he kept part of it for his own use. And then when it was burning certain sacrifices, a person would take red wine, and they would pour it on the hot burning coals. And then there would just kind of be this sweet aroma that would come when you would pour that red wine on those burning coals. And remember that wine is kind of symbolic of joy. So this was the person that was making the sacrifices way of saying when he pours out that wine on it, that he's saying, I gladly make this sacrifice. I'm not doing it because I, it's some kind of duty or something. It's something that I joyfully do. So Paul is saying, he's kind of using this poetic expression here. He knows that death is close at hand. And when he calls himself a drink offering, what he's basically saying to Timothy, when you hear of my death, realize Nero didn't take my life. Roman authorities are not taking my life. I am not being executed against my will. I gladly lay down my life for Christ. Keep enduring, he says. Keep reading. Keep pouring yourself out. And he understands that if we look back and we do these things, we will run the race well and win. And that's his final point. Finish well. Finish strong. He says in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. You know, this year in our men's Bible study that we do on Wednesday night called Men's Fraternity, we have been talking about finishing well. Because a lot of people don't finish well. Since 1982, Dr. Robert Clinton has studied leadership and leaders. His research just covers all aspects of leadership. And he studies historical leaders. He studies contemporary leaders. He studied biblical leaders. And in his area of biblical leadership, he decided that he wanted to see of prominent leaders in Scripture, how many of them finish well. So he made a list of 100 leaders. And then he started trying to figure out which ones finished well. And he concluded that there's only really 49 men of those 100 that you can ascertain from Scripture how life ended for them. The rest of them is just kind of, you just can't really even tell. So that, he narrowed it down to 49 men. And then he broke those 49 men into how they finished into four categories. There were those that were cut off early, those that finished poorly, those that finished so-so, and those that finished well. Just quickly, I want to look at those four categories and how he defines it and which men fit in which categories. Cut off early means that they were killed, assassinated, murdered, overthrown. 
And in that group, he includes Samson, Absalom, Joab, John the Baptist, among others. Some of those were good leaders, but most of them were bad. Finished poorly means they were going downhill late in life. Typical examples include Saul, Solomon, Gideon, Eli. They were men that either crawled across the finish line or were carried across. Then he talks about finished so-so. He's talking about guys that didn't do what God intended for them to do or what they should have done. They didn't complete God's work for their life. In this group, he included David and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah, to name just a few. Now, you might think David, I mean, God said he was a man after his own heart. But if you look at David's finish, he really kind of finished in the middle of the path. And then his last group, finished well, means men that were walking with God personally at the end of their life. Out of the 49, he only found 12. Abraham, Job, Joseph, Joshua, Caleb, Samuel, Elijah, Jeremiah, Daniel, John, Peter, and Paul. That's it. 12. This is where Paul was. This is where we want to be. Let me ask you something. Do you want your life to count for something? I mean, when you leave this earth, do you want to live and leave an impact that will outlive your life? Then follow the example of Paul. Here's what we know after he penned these last words. <coughs> Jewish historians tell us that probably very shortly after Paul finished up 2 Timothy chapter 4, he was taken out of that prison hole, that dungeon, and beheaded. What started on the road to Damascus ended on a chopping block in Rome. He died in obscurity. There was no state funeral. There was no news clip at 11. Not even a memorial service. And while Paul's departure was at hand, Nero was just kind of on a rocket to stardom. Nero was hot. Paul was not. But you know what? History tells us that's actually not true. Because four years after the death of Paul, Nero was 29 years old. He went to a servant's apartment. He was depressed. He was despondent, he was paranoid, he was lonely. Why? Because his second wife had killed his first wife. Then in a fit of rage, he kicked his second wife who was pregnant in the stomach and killed her and the unborn child. So just before the start of his third decade in life, he committed suicide. Remember what I said earlier? If you were just going down the streets of Rome and asked people who would make the difference in world history, 
random folks probably would have said Nero, and who is Paul? And you know what? They would have been wrong. You know, you will find, never find actually, a cathedral dedicated to Nero. But you go into just about any city and you're going to find an edifice somewhere dedicated to St. Paul. I've never written, written, read, try that again. I've never read anything written by Nero. But millions, probably billions of people have read Paul's writings over and over. You probably don't know a single person named Nero. Think about that for a minute. We name our sons Paul and we name our dogs Nero. But I've met plenty of Pauls and Paulines. And I'm looking at many of their faces right now. Men and women of courage. And you're just laboring away in obscurity. Just doing your thing for God's glory. And you're loving your kids as parents. And you are teaching those first graders. And you are manning those fire stations. And you are showing up for work. And you are hanging in there with that difficult wife or that complaining husband. And you're just giving of yourself. And you're taking it one day at a time. And life comes with its challenges and its difficulties. And I want you to know that you are a living epistle. And don't underestimate how God can use your life. You know, when you watch TV or you read People magazine, you see lots of Nero's that are walking around on the red carpet. Lots of people with soft skin, self-proclaimed emperors. Lots of look-at-me rulers. Don't overestimate their influence. The real change makers are people like you and me that are working under the surface, off the radar, changing the world one life at a time. You are one of them. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up. Keep it up. One of the things that we've learned over and over in this series is that God uses just ordinary people. Ordinary people like you and I. And he uses them to accomplish great things. Keep doing what you're doing and finish well. Would you pray with me?